It's almost insulting because you can't go to a doctor and say, treat me if I feel better than I pay you. Or go to the dentist and say, fix this hole. Or I want six dentists to work on this. And whoever does a good job, I pay them. Hey everyone, you're listening to the 2M Creative Labs podcast. On this episode, we have a returning guest, a graphic designer by the name of Sigun Olude. We talk about his method of drawing a map to find your happiness, the idea of visual language, and explaining the value of creative works. Sigun also shares more about his book and the need for showcasing your own culture and language. Enjoy the episode. I'm telling you guys, you, you inspire me all the time, you know. I'm so proud of you guys. You know, oh. Some days I feel like a dad or something, or an uncle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, yeah, uh, I guess just to kind of get started, maybe if we can just have you introduce yourself to the audience, let us know who you are and what you do. I'm Shegun Olude. For those who haven't met me before or know of me, I'm a graphic designer. That's what I do, and I've done that since I was 17. I was counting, you know, because when you're locked down, you have nothing to do but count, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I've pretty much been a graphic designer in one form or the other since I was 17, and my career has taken me to Canada to go back to school. I became a professional graphic designer in Canada, and then... Um, a few years ago, I've done this a couple of times, um, went for my master's in graphic design. Even during that time, I was still doing my teaching. And of course, I was teaching graphic design. So now I work for an international NGO um, with an area of responsibility that spans several countries, which is good. You know, it keeps me busy and, you know, occupied. (laughs) So, good for you. That's so cool. Yes. Well, we figured that last time when you were on the podcast that Juan was the one asking you questions, but I've actually known you longer, so I figured I should ask questions. (laughs) This is great. (laughs) Very good. Okay. So, one time at a coffee shop, we were, you were asking me what my interests were in life, and you started drawing out a map on your iPad and then you showed me and it ended up being my name and then all the interests and then all the things that you thought that I could potentially do. I think your statement was that in order to be happy, I should do something that has all of those subjects. Anyway, what was your thinking behind that idea? Well, um, you know, sometimes in hindsight, we learn a lot about ourselves. I was working on a project, you know, actually it's one of the first projects I worked on in Canada with Professor McMaster at Brandon University within weeks of arriving in in Canada. And he was working on this new concept at that time called mind mapping. And he was interested in seeing how I, as an artist, would interpret stories and information. So... He would give me a film to watch and I'll watch the film and then summarize it in a mind map and basically just get, you know, the gist of it down. And that system worked for taking notes and everything. So eventually one day I was sitting in a hotel. This was one of those sleepless nights, jet lagged, 
I went downstairs into the lobby and there were only two people in the lobby and this was in Nigeria. There was a young girl and the supervisor, they were just chatting away. So I joined them at the counter and we started talking. Turns out that the younger girl didn't know what she wanted to be in life. So I thought, hmm, this is very interesting because I've used the mind map for problem solving before. So I said, come on over, let's sit down. So we sat down. I said, what's your name? So she told me, what are your interests? So we did this exercise through the night. And by the time we were done, <laughs> she was like, I know exactly who I am, what I'm going to be. I'm like, wow, this works. <laughs> So I tried it on myself, tried it on other people, and since then, I've just basically used that system to help people get to know themselves better in one, you know, like you see everything in one space. Instead of writing notes that are several pages, everything is related to each other. And what it's done for me over the years is give me an insight into how to manage time and relationships so that we can get where we're going in life very quickly. Now, I wish I knew that when I was much younger. <laughs> so, so that was it, you know, so I basically tried the same thing with you. <laughs> Interesting. Yes, I remember, I remember that map being overwhelming because the, the ideas were very distant from each other. It wasn't all just creative. That's and how do you find it today now that you think back? It's, it's still overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, from the time that I first met you to now, I see you having hit several buttons on those, well, you know, like on that map. Right. Yes, this is true. Well, uh, this idea is actually what I was going to also ask you. Why did you, why did you switch from being a designer to a teacher? Uh, see, I got very good at the craft. I would say that there was a yearning inside to say, oh, if I had the opportunity to teach somebody, this is how I would teach them. You know, the way that I would have wanted somebody to teach me. Um, simple terms, analogies, and so on and so forth. Because some of the concepts in design are a little bit difficult to grasp if you're young and you're new at it. So over the years, just walking away, I've been simplifying things in my head. So when the opportunity came up at the University of Manitoba to actually do some teaching, I was so excited. I mean, I sat down one whole weekend, drew up the framework for a syllabus, <laughs> breaking it down to exactly the way that I wanted somebody to have taught me all these things that took me years to understand. Of course, they did their best. It's not that I didn't learn anything, but it was a bit more difficult for me to understand all those concepts, probably because of culture, probably because of the way I think so getting to teach the first time was so exciting to show people you know simple things that as a professional designer i took for granted 
and to see people coming into school not knowing those things, I would stop myself sometimes and go, oh, I'm taking it for granted that everybody knew this. So it really helped me to, you know, develop an interest in teaching. And the danger, of course, became when I started liking teaching more than doing design. Because <laughs> <laughs> I thought design was everything for me. But, you know, at this point, I started liking design a little more. So I'm sorry, yeah, teaching more. And I've always wanted to teach since then. Interesting. You seem like a very natural teacher, so <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't start there. I think, you know, with teaching, you, of course, have to know the subject that you want to teach. True. That's one of the biggest things. So um, if you give me a subject and I understand it, I'll be able to teach it. Basically, give me almost anything almost anything, and I say almost anything, do not ever give me math. <laughs> Same. Me and math, we're not friends. <laughs> Same. <laughs> As a concept and a basis, once I, you know, and to be a good teacher, you have to be a good learner as well. Once I can learn the concept and learn, you know, how things work, there I go. So for what I know, which is design, it's a lot easier. That makes sense. So you taught design theory and criticism, which many of these projects that you were assigning were based on visual language. Uh, why did you choose to focus on these things? Well, communication is a very delicate subject. Um, in let's go down to the level of a relationship, you know, um, boyfriend, girlfriend, uh, husband, wife, uh, teacher, student, everybody says, you've got to communicate, you've got to communicate. Well, what exactly makes good communication? Because I'm communicating all the time, but I'm not getting the results. So there's a problem. Um, in one of my studies, you know, and I use this example a lot, Merita Stockton and Lisa Cartwright, their book must be somewhere on my shelf here. They came up with this uh, concept in their book saying that between the time you have an idea and the time when your audience or the person who wants to receive that message between that space all you have is an intention, you have nothing. That causes, you know, it, it makes you think. So I have nothing. So if I open my mouth now, anything I say, it's just my intention. The person receiving it could be thinking something else entirely. So that creates opportunity for well, it's a challenge first, but with every challenge, as you know, comes an opportunity. So every obstacle, if you see them as pieces of rocks across a stream, they could also be stepping stones, depending on what you want to do. 
So you have all these pieces of rock across, you know, that's blocking your communication, your flow. But they could also be stepping stones, depending on the direction you're going. So when we apply that concept to visual language, then we start to learn what the basics of communication are, how we can use the obstacles as opportunities to communicate effectively. Um, When you do it enough, it becomes almost second nature, but to understand what those problems could be and how to overcome those problems is what makes me use those examples in my classes. Um, For instance, long before we started talking about the issue of gender neutral bathrooms, as soon as that idea came out, I started giving assignments in it, not just because I wanted to make it difficult for students, but I also wanted to learn. So with all those opportunities, you know, trying to solve the problem, you know, how do we communicate these ideas visually in any language? Of course, when you say communicate in any language, it's to strip the writing out of the communication and go with images or pictures. Today we call them icons, pictograms, and so on and so forth. You know, so there are all these concepts. You know, it's very hard to talk about it all in one interview, but that's why I like using examples that challenge not just the student, but also the teacher. Because <laughs> if you're not learning anything, you're not teaching well. I remember one of the assignments was the to change the color on a logo and have like a rationale for why why the color changes the meaning of that logo and that was a very interesting class because someone turned the Starbucks logo yellow and it took on a whole different meaning and that was that was an in-depth conversation on color theory. (laughs) It it does, because color is information. Mm -hmm. Color is not just something you choose because you like it or not. It has to have a meaning. Mm -hmm. So changing the Starbucks logo from green to a yellow, for instance, does two things. Number one, it challenges our natural... um, observation and acceptance of Starbucks being a green logo. And you go, what? Wait a minute, why? So the question why then comes up. And then we have to resolve that. Could there have been a better color for the Starbucks logo than what they chose? And what would that color be? So it's up to us as designers to always question things that are existing to mm-hmm. see if there's another opportunity there for us, you know, to communicate better. And is yellow universally accepted as what the designer meant? <laughs> right. That could be another challenge. <laughs> yes. I think the main argument was that the yellow that was chosen was highlighter yellow. And so something about cheapness versus the prestige of dark green exactly yes (laughs) 
And you know, designers can choose to spin stories because we are storytellers at heart. <laughs> That was a very interesting class. Um, how would you explain visual language to clients or people? I find that it's quite difficult. It, it is, but words form the basis of communication when we speak it and hear it. But words also form the basis of images. And images also provoke us to think about words. So I could show you, let me just pull this and say, I show this to you. In your head, a word comes up. Mm -hmm. As opposed to if I showed you this, for instance, another word has to come up. So it's an interplay that we have to know when to jump from one side to the other to help provoke thought. So visual language, the way I would want to explain it is if I met somebody who speaks just French and doesn't speak English, for me to be able to communicate with them and say, oh, I want fish for dinner, I should just by drawing a fish and showing it to them, help them understand that that's what I'm looking for. So we're communicating visually in that space, but it's still going to provoke words. I'll be thinking fish in English, and they'll be thinking poisson in French. So <laughs> that's that's it. It's It's not that difficult it's just a hard concept to to grasp it seems to be mm -hmm. i had a had a teacher who was talking about visual language and she was saying that part of it is subconscious and part of it is conscious and so things like if you saw a symbol or a drawing of a fish you would know that it's a fish but if it were if it were a branding design for a coffee then the texture should be that uh, you know the, the coffee bags that are the burlap? Yes. So then you would understand. Yeah, my challenge, of course, would be what happens if that person never saw coffee seeds before or the burlap? Mm-hmm. Yes. So it ups the ante a little bit. Yeah. Visual language broke my brain in fine art school. <laughs> You're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> It's just so interesting because I don't know if it's thought about that much outside of designers or artists. I, I do believe that just as we teach math and arithmetic and all those simple subjects, you know, English, basic English and so on, we should be teaching basic visual language mm -hmm. at probably primary school level. Right. Because when you get into your higher classes, you should be able to use them as part of your education. And you, not everybody will go to design school, but when you become a CEO, that language should be part of your vocabulary, mm -hmm. that things don't become a challenge. You should be able to communicate with designers and 
you know, accountants and so on, using the same visual language that we all commonly accept as one plus one is two, like we do in math. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the, you know, challenge. And I've reread my visual language books <laughs> over and over. You know, design literacy <laughs> is one of them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so... I think it should be taught at an early age for certain. I would agree. Mm -hmm. It's it's remarkable because even conversations that I've had with clients, for example, grass is green and we understand grass to be green, um, but they wanted it to be blue, which was very strange. And so that had to be a conversation about the shape of grass is very similar to the shapes of waves. Yes. Yes. One of the logos that actually comes to mind right now as we're talking is the green carrot. Yes. Ooh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I saw it, I was like, what? What? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> because yep. they changed the color of the carrot and the green and swapped them. So it yes. causes you to take you know stop and take another look mm -hmm. i think that was effective i think so well just like target targets red of course it's red yes <laughs> <laughs> um okay the last project from that design class was to build a portfolio using a breakdown of uh different projects throughout that term and it used the outline of i think it was I think it was outline and strategy and solution. Why was that the format that you wanted? So when you get into the market, what they're looking for is very different from what we perceive from our student eyes and the teacher eyes. The designer out there or the person interviewing you were looking for what the problem was and what your strategy was. And then, of course, they're looking at your solution. So it's always a good idea for the student to say, this is the brief. We were asked to do such and such. And this is how I went about it. And this is the solution that I have. Those three components, at least, should be part of every uh, thing you show in your portfolio. Otherwise, it's just another design on paper. I mean, I could yes. pull something from my portfolio and say, oh, you know, and you look at it and go, wow, that looks good. But what is it for? Because sometimes you have to stop yourself from doing too much design because your audience is, you know, I wouldn't say uneducated when it comes to design, but you want to keep it so simple. You want them to see it very quickly, understand it quickly, and take it in quickly. You know, that you want to stop yourself from complicating the design. But then there are other areas where you want to actually put a lot into it and create some complex ideas. So that needs to be explained in your portfolio. I've always wished that fine artists would do that at... Um... At any art openings, yes. <laughs> you see, that's the difference between design and art, you know. Um, I think with art, I could wake up this morning and say, 
I, I'm inspired to do a painting. I really don't care whether you understand it or not, because this is coming from me onto that mm. canvas. And some people will get it, some won't. And everybody can interpret it how they, however they want. And that's part of that matrix of the original idea and how it's perceived. Right. It's a negotiation in there. But with graphic design, let me put it this way. If I'm coming up to a sharp curve on the road, I just want to see that arrow showing me there's a sharp curve. That's it. <laughs> it's functional. <laughs> it's got to tell me you're coming up to It's not going to be, well, the color red might indicate there's danger ahead. And right. this line tells me that there could be some dual possibilities. No. <laughs> <laughs> so design is very functional, but mm -hmm. it can still be beautiful. Right. So that's the struggle sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely. I just thought it was interesting because of all the portfolios, not that there are very many that were we were told to make an art school, but of all the portfolios, you were the only one that gave an outline for how that should actually be formatted. Sometimes it's helpful to give that kind of instruction to help the student, you know, get things in order instead mm. of leaving it loose. You've had so many opportunities to do things on your own, you know, with just very simple instructions and say, hey, this is a project, go do it. But when it comes to the portfolio, it's now a bit more formal. So right. you need more instruction there. Even for me, sometimes I go back into my old notes and go, ah, yes, of course, I have to have this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the format I use for all my portfolios now still how, how does it work do you, the people say anything have you heard any feedback for or what you show people not specifically about the format of the portfolio so much as comments on actual projects mm -hmm. yeah but it's definitely better than my website because i don't put all of the like every explanation on every piece of work so I'd rather people look at my portfolio than that. But anyways. <laughs> Portfolios are a little more intimate, you know? Yeah. It's like holding a book in your hand. Even if mm -hmm. it's digital, you still have something in your hand. So we'll, we'll see how that changes over time. But for now, you know, the portfolio is still very useful most times. And it helps yeah. to focus because if you send me to a website, sometimes click, 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 I'm gone. Yep. <laughs> yep. I don't have the discipline. Or I get lost because <laughs> people have so many different sections on their website. Unless you need yeah. a kiosk of some sort, you know. <laughs> True. Okay, so I have some questions that are client related. Okay, is there an order or process to how you approach creative projects? Each project has its own personality. 
to find out what that personality is, is the hardest part. It's like saying, what kind of skeleton do I have to make to give this object its form? Putting the form on once you have the skeleton is the easy part. So it would require, of course, asking a lot of questions and trying to find answers to those questions. In the old days, if it's a really complex project, we would actually sometimes go into a company or a firm and interview the people working there. Hey, what is it that you're doing? How does it affect the overall goal of the company? You know, some sometimes people who you know give us this project, they're shocked, you know when they see the answers that come out of those sessions. It's forced some companies to even rethink what they do. <laughs> That's <Whoa>. cool. <laughs> That's really cool. In the, in the old days, my boss had an anecdote, you know, where eventually after going through one of those processes, they didn't even design anything for the company. They just said, you need a new receptionist. Somebody who would take the phone call, who would do this, who would do that, you know, at the front end, and that will solve your problem. So not every time do you need to go design something on paper or whatever. Mm -hmm. So design is a very general term that could be applied to anything. Today, it's UI, UX. It could be print material. It could be even the design of what the f a video is going to look like or a product is going to look like. So knowing what you're going to end up with is the goal. But going in and saying, ah, I know exactly what you need is probably the wrong approach. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's that easy, but often it will require asking the right questions. So today a designer might have the company send out, um, you know, one of those surveys, online surveys to the customers or to the clients or to people who use their services so they understand better how they interact with their products. And then that would inform what they're going to do with the products. So it's a bit different today, or should I say it's a little bit easier to do but you always have to ask those questions and then attempt to answer them in the final rollout of the design. And the process also has changed today. In the past, you ask the questions, you do some brainstorming, create a prototype, do a finished product. People use them and they go, ah, we don't like it. Or why didn't they think of this? Why didn't they think of that? But today it's a little bit different where you don't have to go the full extent. As you're doing your ideation, you can have some people testing it. You can do an AB version. And very quickly, you know what this product is going to be. So that's the advantage of um, having some kind of metrics in the middle mm -hmm. of your design and it's got to be flexible enough to accommodate those um, 
answers that you get. Otherwise, it's just a waste of time. So both work, but it's much easier today. Mm-hmm. I heard from a variety of different people that some people are intuitive about understanding what clients want, whereas some people are not intuitive um, in those conversations or interviews for a preliminary project. Um, <laughs> the intuition or do the grind? <laughs> yeah, well, the metrics, the metrics. Do you find that there are specific ones that are useful to most projects? Again, it's the project that's going to determine how it forms itself, so to speak. The designer is more like a surrogate, you know. (laughs) (laughs) What an image. (laughs) It's very interesting. (laughs) And you're going to do that over and over and over. Sometimes you're giving birth to three different products at the same time period. I don't even know how we do it sometimes, but that's who we are. So the metrics are helpful to an extent. But what I found lately is that there's a heavy dependence on the metrics to dictate what the product would look like. And intuition is slowly taking a second place. Whereas before, in fact, almost everything we use today that's not been refined by metrics was done out of intuition, trial and error. There's a place for that. There's an over-reliance on metrics now that intuition and that natural tendency for us to say, oh, I think this is what we should do is slowly taking a back seat and the results are sometimes very interesting. Yes. Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How do you explain the value of creative or design work to other people, to non-designers? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel. <laughs> exactly. So this is one of the biggest problems with, let's say, creativity generally. I have to acknowledge first that everybody is creative mm-hmm. and we do creative things. No, naturally, we have to accept that. So why would you, Serena, <laughs> charge me for your creativity right (laughs) so it's a problem in the heads of people generally so here is where the problem starts and i may be totally wrong but in my own personal analysis as a kid you draw something nice somebody says oh you're so creative and you get a pat on the head when you get to high school Oh, you're the, you're the creative one. You should work on the school yearbook. All along, all you're getting is praises and praises and praises. And then you start working as a designer. Sometimes it's a struggle to get paid 
for that thing when you could have been okay with just a pat on the head or the you know whatever right so you can't take applause to the bank to pay your rent (laughs) (laughs) so true (laughs) so what is the way that we're going to convince people that this pursuit is actually uh, worth paying for i don't know if you've heard me say this before you a creative person whoever you are out there you're getting paid for your three t's that is your time your talent and your technique and i would add a fourth one to it and that is your technology let me deal with the easiest one technology every three years my computer gets old whether I like it or not, you know, the software companies have upped the capacity or capability of the software, and I have to get a new machine that will cope with it, or a bigger hard drive, or something that will be able to run gigabits of data right through from the cloud into my, you know, workspace. So I need to be charging a little bit every day or putting something aside to be able to replace it. Now, if you're thinking, oh, I'm really smart. I didn't learn this before. It's something that I've come to understand and I'm trying to get people not to fall into the same trap that I was in. So charge for your technology. You need a new microphone for your blogs and you know what kind of microphone you need, you've got to start charging for it. You know, Mm -hmm. I have all sorts of equipment that people go, hey, what's that? What does it do? I know what it does and I know how much I paid (laughs) for it. So that's your technology. Your technique is another easy one to explain. If I give 10 designers the same project, each one of them will come back with a different solution. Maybe a couple of them would look similar. They would all use different colors, different techniques to get to their solution. What about talent? Talent is not just you were born creative. Talent includes all the time you spent learning and honing your skills and becoming better at it and failing at it. And like me, when I started using the computer, I spent eight hours one day trying to figure one specific thing. I almost drove myself crazy. (laughs) And then into the studio comes this fellow and says, hey, what are you doing? He's an older student. And I said, well, I've been trying to get this shape to go into that shape so that I can get this happening. And he's like, oh, all you have to do is take this, drag it here and place it inside and do this and do that. And he was done. I spent eight hours. Do you think I'll ever forget that? (laughs) I've never, it's how many years now? I still remember. I'll never forget it. So (laughs) your talent includes all those times when you go for your conference, when you go for your tutorials, when you sit in front of YouTube learning something new, 
it all builds your talent mm -hmm. and it plays into your technique. Now, your time, somebody's got to pay for your time. The, the minutes that you spend doing one thing, you could have spent it doing something else. So if someone comes to you and says, hey, I want you to do such and such for me, then they need to pay you for that time that you spend doing that work so that you'll be alive to be able to do another one next time. <laughs> you've got to pay your rent, you've got to buy food, you've got to buy clothes. And yes, designers love nice, sleek things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> so those are the things, you know, if, you, if we all remember the, the T's, your time, your talent, your technique, and of course your technology. They are all part of the package. So some of the problems that we encounter as designers, somebody might say, oh, we want a new logo for association. There's a competition. The winner would get $500 and some merchandise. Mm -hmm. So you have 3,000 people enter that competition. That means if each person spent two hours coming up with what they need for their organization times the number of people that entered that competition, that's what the organization is getting. And only yes. one person wins that means everybody else is uh <laughs> yep <laughs> so it's almost insulting because you can't go to a doctor and say treat me if i feel better then i pay you or go to the dentist and say fix this hole or i want six dentists to work on this and whoever does a good job i pay them there are so many analogies in the world the lawyer sits down with you for five minutes, they break it down. You've got to pay for their 30 minutes and some charge in blocks of 30 minutes, some in blocks of one hour. You can't say, oh, I'm just calling you to ask, what about this and this and this? That mm -hmm. is a 30 minute block. They know how to bill. So it's up to the designer now to come up with viable ways to try and make a living and not be that hungry artist forever. Mm -hmm. And it applies to artists and anyone involved in creative pursuit. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> One agrees a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I find it quite difficult to explain value to people who are set on the fact that it's not worth that much. Um, I'm not really sure why that is what they're thinking, because if you're coming to me to ask about questions, then there has to be some merit for why you came around. <laughs> it's because um, today it's more of a challenge, I think. Mm -hmm. There are websites that offer services for $5, what you want to charge 54 Right. And what you want to charge 200 for, there are some that are ready to get it for 20 bucks. Mm -hmm. So 
that poses a major challenge. Number two, your competition is not the same person or another de designer in your city. Mm -hmm. Your competition is in Asia, they're in Africa, they're somewhere in Australia, they, they're all over the place. So everybody has a website. Now, here's where it gets crazy. If you are paying to get a better ranking by Google, half the decision is made for the person looking for design service. It doesn't mean that they're better than you. It's just that their name comes up faster than yours. So I really am a little glad that I'm older and I don't have to deal with this for too long. That's so real. I'll be praying for all the young people. So Google and other search engines actually play a role in deciding what's good for not just the designer, actually, for anybody who's trying to do business. So mm. those who pay more are listed higher and perceived as better when the work they do might be nonsense. Mm hmm. Yep. It's, it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. It's challenging. Mm -hmm. So somebody could say, oh, yeah, you know, there's another designer that comes up higher and thing, and they only charge such and such. Yes. But when you find out later that they charge very low going in, and then they start adding and adding and adding and adding to the cost, mm -hmm. usually the client gets wise at some point. Right. Yes. Yeah. Very interesting. <laughs> I was going to give an example, but it's probably way too specific for a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we can cut it out if you want. <laughs> yeah, we all have examples. And, you know, for me, the other thing that I do these days is it's kind of crazy. I, I, I'm not sounding morbid or anything. I know that I have limited time. You know, I, I want to do a lot of things before my time is up. Okay. So when I have a client that you say, okay, let's have a meeting and they cancel on you the first time, second time, third time they give you another story. It's not that they're not interested. It's not that they're not going to pay you. Well, if it's of no value to you, I don't want to be a part of it. I don't want to be part of your craziness. Mm -hmm. When there are other people that don't have any money, don't have any means, that have something and they have a place to go. I'd rather, you know, just work with those people and do a lot in my life than sit with somebody's craziness of not knowing or not putting the time into what they want to do or be, you know, I, I don't even know how to explain that yet, but I'm sure I'll come up with some explanation. I think so, that makes sense. Cause there's many clients who, worth? right. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think there's many clients who 
don't exactly know what they want, but they want to sit down with you so that you tell them what they want. And it's not necessarily beneficial for either person because they either agree or they don't agree, or it's not the actual solution because they don't actually know what they want. If that and makes any sense. It does. And, you know, it's actually understandable to a certain point. Mm-hmm. But every business person or everyone who has a new product to put out need to understand that it's not about them. It's about the people they want to serve. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So if I'm sitting with a client and they want me to do their bidding over what their own customers or clients need, then there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And designers too are, you know, they make a lot of mistakes too, because some want to push their style. Yes. What the client needs. And that drives me nuts also. Yep. Yep. It's it's so big. (laughs) Just like, it's a solution that you're trying to provide. You're serving the client, not your own creative right away. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because then that falls more into the purview of fine arts than design. Fine arts. You know, I should be able mm-hmm. to pull 10 things out of my portfolio and one should not look like the other because Absolutely. the engineering brochure should not look like the um, brochure for the ballet. Or, you know, like there might be commonalities that yes, it's effective. Yes, it communicates, mm-hmm. but the products are very different. You know, yes. everything does not have to look mechanical or, I, I, you know, you know what I mean anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Actually, you have a lot of comments about similar things for videographers. Yeah, it's, I well, back to like the idea of pushing your own style versus what your client is looking for. We're so sometimes very passionate about what we do and we we obviously want to create work that we're excited about, but when we miss the mark of what the reason for making that piece is, then obviously somebody's not going to be happy with it. And it's usually the client that says, this isn't what I was looking for. It's not solving the problem that I was trying to fix by hiring you kind of thing. Well, and even the audience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. And that's part of this uh, problem of, the original idea and the reception, the mm-hmm. creation and the audience, you know, who is this meant for? If the designer is one of the problems in that space, that is a terrible thing. The designer, you know, let me give you one example very quickly. Okay. <laughs> so, If the product that I'm trying to showcase already exists, let's say I want to sell this. I use the word sell. I want to promote this. It's already existing. So why should I muck it up? Just show it to me already and get out of the way. Use a photo use a video, show me this product, Mm -hmm. tell me what it does. That's it. Done. 
don't try to be mysterious or write 10 pages of whatever to try and tell me about the product. Just show me a picture. Mm -hmm. Show me callouts. This is a microphone. It will do dual streams. The video is high def quality. You know, like tell me these things. It will take USB. It will take, just tell me what it does. Mm -hmm. It has battery backup, yes. That's all I need to know. But show me the photo, tell me the size, so I know it fits in my little pouch. And that's it. But sometimes the designer will try to be clever and do all these things. And, you know, they might get a writer who complicates it by writing, you know, lots of copy when all you need is this is the product it records you know hd video you can fit it in your pocket you can take it anywhere it has battery backup it has powerful microphone that will pick up two voices you know you the interviewer and the person you're interviewing you know just tell us be done with it <laughs> so the designer has to really be very disciplined and say, at the expense of my own bright idea, I'm going to pare it down and give the audience what it's going to communicate very quickly and save your brilliant idea for something else, you know, like a poster competition that you're going to go do whatever. Encourage <laughs> <laughs> that. <laughs> because like you said, it falls almost in the realm of art when you start yeah. imposing your own style on it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Then the focus isn't the problem solving. Mm -hmm. It's changed. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you're, not, you're not serving. You're serving yourself first, exactly. Yes. Yeah. That's not the purpose of design. We no. always have to remember we're surrogates. This <laughs> <laughs> is the theme of the episode. I love it. <laughs> it's just such an image. That's <laughs> true, though. Or, or you could be a midwife, too. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Tell the clients to push. <laughs> <laughs> Some could have used that. <laughs> True. Uh, my last question is actually about your book. So you have written a book in the past. Well, you've you've worked on this for a long time, but I think you published it last year. The year before, yes. Has it been that long? Yeah, I know. Time flies. Whoa. In May in lockdown. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So I just wanted to ask you about the book and what need you saw for it and why you made it and why a book. The title of the book is Itong Ati Asha Ibile Yoruba and subtitled in English. It's the Yoruba narrative in words and images. It actually started as a master's thesis at VCFA Vermont and kept growing until it became a full book. The primary reason being that it was meant to be an academic study um, to see and also visually explore what the Yoruba narrative is. And it grew to become this book 
And so it's now a language document. It's also a historical document. Inside the book, um, I looked at uh, the periods between birth and death for Yoruba, as told in their stories and um, in the language. I started with stories in the book by looking at an old trunk box that my mom had, you know, where she kept important documents and knickknacks. So anytime you ask her a question, she goes into that box and she opens it up and pulls something out and uses it to tell a story. The other end of the book contains my final proposal that suggests to you people to go into their cultural archives, cupboards and trunk boxes, to pull out objects that they can, you know, put together in a box and use that to tell stories to their children and grandchildren. So what kind of stories? Um, stories about their history, stories about origin and myth. Stories about how the people came about to be where they are today. Talks about death, talks about birth, talks about name, talks about childhood, marriage, inheritance, war, medicine, water, work, proverbs, and all sorts in between. But as a graphic designer, my, the biggest exercise for me in the book is to develop um, teaching materials like posters for the alphabet of the Yoruba and also trying to interpret the meaning of some of the adages and proverbs in the rich Yoruba culture. As a Canadian, um, most of us come from other places and settled in Canada. When we pride ourselves as being a multicultural country, we need to know the different little elements that make up that mosaic. So the book is one piece of this Canadian mosaic. It helps to explain who the Yoruba are. And when they come to Canada to come and settle, it's important that we know who they are, what they believe and how they live so that we can all work together nicely on the same cultural mosaic or multicultural mosaic called Canada. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is we can only um, preserve something by use. If it's not used, it just becomes dilapidated and it breaks, breaks down and that's it. By using the Yoruba language, by keeping it alive through use, we save it from dying. You tell many people that the Yoruba language is slowly dying and they don't understand that, as well as many other African origin languages. They're dying and being replaced by English, even in Africa as we speak today. By using the Yoruba language, telling the stories and keeping it alive, we preserve this language so that it doesn't join the list of over 570 something languages that are dead. Some languages are dead, and yet the people who should be speaking the language culturally um, are still alive. But their language is dead. We do not want that to happen to the Yoruba language. So this is my own effort to keep the language alive by writing a book. The second part of the book, of course, is to finish the digitization of it, where I'm including little videos and snippets so that it can 
go um, online and be sold through various channels so that it becomes a richer experience. Are you still selling the book? Yes. Um, okay. Right now, you know, of course, you know, when you self-publish, it's not quite the same as having a publisher take it off your hands. So I've been selling it out of the boot of my car. You call it trunk. We call it the boot. That's very British. <laughs> selling it out of my suitcase, you know, two, one, you know, five at a time. So at the moment, I, I believe at the last count, there are over 250 of the books out there. Nice. In actual sale. I don't give them away because when you give them away, you know, of course, we we have a, an adage in the language that says the medicine that you give away that's not paid for will rot on the shelf, something like that. But if you pay yes. for it, you'll know, I'm going to use this thing. It's a belief that this is going to help you, that that's why you pay for it. So hopefully I can recoup what I've spent, you know, printing the book and print right. more. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's a very slow process. And I like talking about it, you know, giving presentations, um, using photos and information that are not in the book to support it. Mm -hmm. So... It's still, it's it's an ongoing project. It's going to be revised soon. Like I said, the digital form with interviews and photos and little videos is being prepared right now. That's so cool. Yeah, that's so cool. <laughs> I really encourage everyone to do this. And if any of your listeners need to consult, I'll do that, you know. I need to help them. How do you start? Where do you start from? How do you interview people? Who do you talk to? And you, you, you can actually be instrumental in getting people on this kind of projects because it's vital at this time when all sorts of narratives are out there and people are just, you know, saying so many untruths. So it's best that you catch a truth now and the generations before are dying with their knowledge. They're leaving with the, with the knowledge. So we better capture all that knowledge now before it's too late. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> I feel like this should be a project. <laughs> <laughs> we could make one. <laughs> well, that's all my questions. So thank you so much for being on the podcast again. Thank you. It's, mm -hmm. it's a pleasure to be, you know, with you guys. And I think it's always very good when people ask questions of me because that's when I actually provide an answer. Because for me, I know everything in my head, and I just assume that everybody knows exactly the same thing. <laughs> I always share the same information, but mm -hmm. you know, this is an opportunity for me to share the little bits that I have. And I really, uh, I appreciate that. And I thank you for it. No, we thank you. It's <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah. All the best. Thanks again for listening to the episode. Consider giving us a rating on iTunes and subscribing or following the podcast. If you found this valuable to your creative pursuits, share this episode with your friends because word of mouth always helps. And we'll see you in the next one. 